And, you know, um, there was a, a, a cartoon that came out, I don't know, a couple years ago. It's called Rise of the Guardians. I'm sure most of y'all kids have seen it. But in that movie, uh, Jack Frost, who was, they were trying to get him to become a member of the team. I can't remember what they were called, the, um, the Guardians. Of course, that's what the movie's named of. That's what they're called. Anyways, uh, so they're trying to get Jack Frost to join the team of the Guardians. And um, character of Santa Claus was, I don't know if he was Russian. He had a Russian accent. You know, he was of northern descent. And here it is. He, he's trying to tell Jack Frost that he has to find his center, what makes him him. And uh, he's trying to get him to see what Santa Claus is trying to get him to see uh, what Santa's center was. And he had these Russian... Um, what are they called? Uh, the Russian dolls that they set in one another? I don't know what they're called. Yeah, nesting. That's it. Thank you. The nesting dolls. And he said, what do you see about these? And he said, I don't know. Big eyes? He said, exactly. Big eyes. He said, yes, big eyes. Very big because they are full of wonder. That is my center. What I was born with. Eyes that have always been the wonder in everything. Eyes that see the lights and the trees and the magic in the air. And so I started thinking, am I losing those eyes of wonder for Christ? Am I losing the, the, the wonder that's to behold, be held in, in the mystery of Christ? I mean, that was, that was a song that was sang just a minute ago, and it just, as soon as the words were sung, it was almost like the choir got even louder uh, for me during that moment. Um, you know, that wasn't something that was orchestrated, but... Evan didn't even know I was speaking today until about 20 minutes ago. Uh, but it just shows how God works. You know, behold the wondrous mystery. The wondrous mystery that Christ would die a sinner's death, that he would die a, a criminal's death on a tree for our transgressions. And, and just the wonder that we should behold in that. And in, in youth, for the last month and a half, we've been in Hebrews, and we're walking through the significance of the Old Testament and understanding the Old Testament so we can see, in light of the Old Testament, what Christ has done for the New Covenant. See, we can't lose the wonder in our salvation found through our faith and the atoning sacrifice of Christ. In Hebrews, the author, author of that book isn't known. We don't know who wrote it. We do know that it was written sometime prior to 70 AD. Why? Because they're still talking about the sacrificial system that was still in place in Jerusalem. And we know that the temple fell in Jerusalem after 70 AD. So it was written sometime prior to that. It was written to Jewish converts. Why? Because this, this letter was written, and, in, and it's for people who have a vast knowledge of the Old Testament, the sacrificial rites and the system put into place for sin and, and sacrifice and bringing the community back in communion with God. And it, it's, it can be considered kind of a difficult one to work through because why, sadly... Uh, a lot of self-proclaiming Christians don't have a great grasp on the Old Testament. 
And this is what Dr. Robert, or I'm sorry, Albert Moeller, uh, he's the president of the Southern Seminary. This is what he said about Hebrews. He said, many Christians find Hebrews a very challenging book to understand. And this is most likely because Hebrews assumes a certain amount of knowledge of the Old Testament. Therefore, in order to understand this New Testament letter, we must become familiar with the history, themes, and theology of the Old Testament. Hebrews will guide us. Hebrews will guide us along this journey, but it is important that we keep our Old Testaments open as we read this epistle. Now, I'm going to be reading, and I'll encourage you and just ask if you will turn with me in, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll start in verse 1. Prior to this chapter, the author has been laying out exactly what we've needed. And now... Starting in verse, or chapter 8, he starts to show that we have exactly what we need. Jesus, the great high priest who mediates a new and better covenant. And so in this, in this message today, I want to point out the, these items, that Christ is a better high priest, Christ is a better covenant, Christ is a better sacrifice. Starting in verse 1, chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place for holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, I pray that these truths will be made clear God, that through the Spirit, we will receive the spirit of uh, revelation, understanding of your word. And God, may it be used to bring you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, I figured it was best probably to start out with 
uh, a background on the rituals of the Day of Atonement, which is what he's talking about here. Uh, this was a specific day. It was typically, uh, in, they say, in September to October time frame. And this was the one day out of the year that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He's the only person that could go in there and only under strict stipulations and only once a year. Now, the high priest was, uh, originally it was set up as Aaron. Aaron was the first one that was ordained by God. He was uh, the very first high priest, and it is through Aaron's line that the high priests come. So every high priest can trace their genealogy back to Aaron. Now, from all appearances, the rituals outlined in our text do not begin the day's activities for the high priest. He had other duties that he had to perform uh, outside of his Holy of Holies, Day of Atonement rituals. And so that would have been, you know, that day would have seemed to begin as usual with the offering of a morning sacrifice, the burnt offering of a one-year-old lamb. And after these duties would, were performed, the high priest would commence the ceremonies of the Day of Atonement. Now, these, these can be found in Leviticus chapter 16, I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to summarize everything for you, but I, I encourage you to go back and read uh, that text so that you can, can read it for yourself of what the high priest was expected to do during this day. First, Aaron was to take off his normal priestly garments. I say Aaron, but this is coming from Leviticus, so it's any high priest. Take off his normal priestly garments, wash, and then put on the special garments which were prescribed for the sacrifices, which took him into the Holy of Holies. Now, these garments differed. Um, every day of the year, the high priest wore very ornate um, ceremonial dress. It was very, I mean, it was kingly uh, looking. Gold, ornate jewels, um, flowing robes. And that was because on and every other day, he was God's representative amongst the people. And on this day, the Day of Atonement, he actually changed what he wore. He actually dressed down to just a simple linen garment. Why? Because we have to strip ourselves of any earthly status when we go into the presence of the Most High God. And here it is, the high priest has to go in and, and put himself in a, a position of humility, uh, a, a position of subordination um, underneath God Almighty. Now, after that, Aaron secured the necessary sacrificial animals, which were a bull for his own sin offering, and two male goats for the people's sin offering, Two rams, one for Aaron's and the other for the people's burnt offering. Aaron would slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. And before entering into the Holy of Holies with the blood of the bull, Aaron had to create a cloud of incense in the Holy of Holies, covering the mercy seat to veil the glory of God so that he could enter in. And the best description that I got from this was, uh, and explain this, kind of brought into emphasis that like a beekeeper does. You know, before a beekeeper opens up his, his hive, he actually sprays the hive with a, with a smoke to uh, cover up and, and put the, the bees at ease, if you will. 
In the case of Aaron, dimming the glory of God's presence and sense so as to create an obscuring veil of smoke, thus dimming the glory of God's presence and sparing his life. Aaron then took some of the blood of the bull and sprinkled it on the mercy seat seven times. Lots were then cast for the two goats to determine which would be slaughtered and which would be driven away. The goat for slaughter, the goat of the people's sin offering, was sacrificed and his blood was taken into the Holy of Holies and applied to the mercy seat as the bull's blood had been. Cleansing was then made for the holy place, seemingly by the sprinkling of the blood for both the bull and the goat. The atonement of the holy place is done alone without anyone present to help or to watch. Next, outside the tent, Aaron was to make atonement for the altar of burnt offering. Using, as it would seem, the blood of both the bull and the goat. Now the second goat, the one that was um, kept alive, had the sins of the nation symbolically laid on its head. It's actually where we get the term scapegoat from. The priest would take the goat and then he would symbolically place the sins of the people onto this goat. And then another priest had the role of leading this goat far away from the camp to where it could never return. Aaron then entered the tent of meeting, removing his linen garments, washed and put on his normal priestly garments. The burnt offerings of rams, one for Aaron and his family, and the other for the people was now offered. The earlier sacrifices of the bull and the goat were completed. The fat of the sin offering was burned on the altar, and the remains of the bull and the goat were taken outside the camp where they were burned. Those who had been rendered unclean by handling the animals on which the sins of Aaron or the people were laid were to wash themselves and then return to camp. The Day of Atonement was a cleansing of not just a place, but a people. And the people's role in the Day of Atonement, uh, they didn't have a passive role. It was an active role that the people had for this day, the special day. Although they were to observe a Sabbath rest, they were commanded to remember this ordinance as a permanent statute by humbling their souls. I know that's a long and tedious background, but I think it's necessary to understand what was required and, and you know, what was expected from God for one man once a year to enter into his presence. I mean, think about it. We come into this house freely, daily if we wanted to. We, we are literally the temple of God. The Spirit dwells within us. And I think it's, it's easy to lose sight of what had to be accomplished prior to Christ. Let me reread verses 1 through 5 again in uh, chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant, 
covered on all sides with gold, in which was a gold urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot now speak in detail. See, it says that, uh, you know, God's gave precise instructions. And you got to think, the tabernacle were to perform those duties of worship. And you got to think, the tabernacle even had a very specific detailed floor plan. The wall surrounding it had specific instructions on uh, the segments, the, the dimensions of everything, how things were supposed to be orchestrated, where things are supposed to be placed. Everything had a place, everything had a purpose. So Israel was not to worship God however they wanted. That's what the pagans did. God wanted his people specifically worshiping him as the one true God and not like the false gods that surrounded them. The tabernacle was the epicenter. It was a, it was a microcosm. It was a miniature representation of all the cosmos that is ruled and governed by God, if you will. John Walton is a professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College. He says this, he says, The temple is considered the center of cosmos and in itself a microcosmos. Once we understand this ancient concept, we can understand that the temple would be seen as the control room of the cosmos from where God sustains creation and history. It was where Israel offered sacrifices and the priests interceded on behalf of the people. And, and the thing about it is it's but a shadow. And what I mean by shadow, um, if you want to imagine uh, being in a cave and the fire uh, uh, roaring in front of you, you would see the shadows of any object around you cast onto the walls. It's not, the shadows aren't the actual objects that they're representing, but they're just a simple representation of that. Does that make sense? I don't know if I'm explaining that well enough, but the, it's just a shadow of what is true, of what the reality is. See, the temple and all the objects within and all the rituals within are simply a shadow of what Christ accomplished in his sacrificing, salvation-acquiring act of work on the cross. The ceremony of the priest going in and sprinkling the blood on all these items was purifying the replicas of the true heavenly objects. And the priest could only do this once a year, only after he made a sin offering for himself. But Christ is the one that takes the sacrifice, the blood, into the heavenly realm, into the kingdom of God, where no man can go. And he doesn't do it for the shadows of the objects. He does it for the heavenly objects themselves. See, the new covenant shifts our focus from a place to a person 
since Christians no longer are required to worship God in a central location. You don't have to turn there, but um, this brings to mind John chapter 4 with a Samaritan woman. And Christ is at the well with this woman, and, and she starts to talk to him, and he starts to reveal to her her sin and her life. And what does she do? She kind of asks him a theological question. It says, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. See, in John, he shows us that we're no longer bound to a central location. And we even have the habit of saying, going to church, right? I got to go to church. Why? Because we still have that mindset in some ways, in some form or fashion, that the church is a place. That's the central location where we go and worship God. And we need to be reminded that the church is not the place, it's the people, right? I mean, how many of you learned that, uh, that childhood uh, saying of the, the steeple and the people and the church? You know what I'm talking about? And it's in the church, where Christ dwells. Not in this building, not in these walls. The worship of God is, cannot be contained with any wall. We can't put God in such a box because then we limit our view of just how powerful and mighty and glorious God truly is. Everything in the tabernacle had a place and a purpose. The tent reflected the holiness of God and communicated his perfection, transcendence, and righteousness. And then he goes in and he lists items that were located. Because you got to remember, there was, he separated, he says that in the tabernacle there's the holy place, and then there's a veil, a curtain, where there is then the most holy place, the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, he lists those objects. And one of them is the Ark of the Covenant. Within the Ark of the Covenant, he has Aaron's staff. And this serves as a reminder of how God kept his people alive in the wilderness and how God chose Aaron for the priesthood. And the tablets themselves remind the people of God's covenant with them and the responsibility to hold the covenant by obeying the law. He has in there, he talks about that the manna, the manna, the food that fell from the sky itself, right? The, the food that, that the Israelites complained about and, and fussed about. Like, you give us this stuff to eat? I want some meat, right? You're going to give us this? We ate better whenever we were in Egypt as slaves. Can you give us this manna? Well, in the Ark of the Covenant, there is a golden urn full of manna. Why? Because it serves as a constant testimony of God's sustaining care of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. He makes mention of the mercy seat. 
But I want to come back to that in just a little bit. Six through ten shifts our focus. It shifts to the responsibilities and stipulations for the priests in the holy places and the deficiency in their work. Let me reread that section. In verse six, it says, These preparations have thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But in the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. See, there was, there's really three kinds of sins. There was um, the sin that where people were doing what God told them not to do. There's also the sin of people, uh, the sin that was committed when people didn't do what God told them to do. And then there is the unintentional sin, the sin that people commit and you don't even realize you're committing it. You have no idea that you're even committing a sin in your life. And that's what the Day of Atonement was for. It was to uh, appease God and ask for mercy from Him and atone for this unintentional sin in their lives. Picking back up in uh, verse 8, says, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the, the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. So you remember that only the high priest can enter the Holy of Holies and then only once a year. And to enter into there, blood was necessary. It was necessary for the atonement of his own sin along with the nation of Israel. And he had to perform this duty year after year after year after year. See, that's what he's talking about when he said the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was speaking this about towards this repetition. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Man could not freely come into the presence of God since the high priest could only do so once a year and only certain stipulations. A sinful man cannot come into the presence of a holy God. The priestly work would only come to an end when something finally arrived. The Spirit was crying out for the day when the final sacrifice would come. As long as the curtain separated the holy place from the holy of holies, then there was a separation and man could never come into the presence of God. In the new covenant, we no longer have that distinction. We no longer are separated from the presence of God. Why? Because Christ said on the cross, it is finished, right? He said from the cross, it is finished. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, it says that Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature. That he is the radiance of God's glory. And then after making propitiations for the sins, after he atoned for the sins of all mankind, he went and sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit down? Because that work was finished. It was completed. The veil was torn. And that was God's way of showing us that there is no longer a separation between him and us, that we are able and capable of coming into his presence when we have our trust and faith in Jesus Christ 
and that we stand before him, not in our own glory, but simply clothed in the glory of Christ. See, Christ is the better high priest. He doesn't have to make the atoning sacrifice year after year on a continual basis. His blood was enough one time for all time, for all sin, for all people. He's a better covenant. He's a better promise. Knowing that our salvation is secure in Him, that there's nothing that we can do that will ever be good enough, we'll never make ourselves right enough to be in God's presence, but simply just putting our faith and trust in His atoning work. He's a better sacrifice. And I said it before, I want to go back to the mercy seat. To get an idea of what the mercy seat is and, and how it was constructed, what it was, I want to take you to Exodus 25. You don't have to turn there. I just ask that you just write it down so you can go back and read it. In Exodus 25, starting at 17, it says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half in breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So the mercy seat was the, the lid, if you will, of the ark of the covenant. And in the original Hebrew, it actually translates to covering. The, the translation of the mercy, the word in Hebrew into the Septuagint, from, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, we have the word hilasterion. And this word is where we get propitiation. Propitiation is simply the appeasing of God. It is offering a sacrifice to appease the anger and the wrath of the deity of God himself, God Almighty. And it was on this object where the high priest had to go every year, year after year, and sprinkle with the blood of the sacrifice. Every year. Now I want you to 
write down John 20, verse 12. This takes place in the tomb, and Mary walks in to the tomb to find it empty. Except she finds two angels. It says, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. Jesus Christ is a sacrifice. It was his blood that appeased God for all times. And it was in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection where God meets us. Remember back in Exodus 25, it says on verse 20, And you shall put on the mercy seat the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you. It was in the sacrifice of Christ where God meets his people and where he speaks to us. And you see that imagery whenever John writes the two angels sitting on the empty slab that used to contain the body of Christ. Don't lose the wonder of what Christ has done for us. I pray that the... the, the the times we come together when we come into this place as the church, that we don't lose that wonder, that we don't stop seeing God and all that He has done for us with those big eyes, standing in awe of Him. Because it can be so easy to just come here and sit week after week, time after time, I'll tell you, that this is what we've been going over within the youth. And the reason why is because I have this underlying fear at all times. See, Jesus tells us that there's going to be a time where he tells, uh, he separates the sheep from the goats. And he says this, he says that uh, those that he casts off, they will say, but Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And what does he say to him? He says, be gone from me, for I never knew you. There are people sitting in pews all across this world who are just sitting in pews. There are people who are lost as can be. And I pray that that wonder is brought on by the Spirit and that we live Spirit-filled lives in everything that we do. Because it's not about us coming together and sitting in a pew, but it's about us having a relationship with Christ. It's not about the tasks that we accomplish. It's not about the, the, the rituals we, we perform ourselves, but it is about the relationship. So I want to close out with um, 
chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Don't lose that wondrous mystery. It should be evident in every aspect of your life. It should be the motivating factor of whenever you find it difficult to love the ones that are difficult to love. It should be the, uh, the driving force behind understanding who your identity truly is in, not in friendships, not in the things that people say about you that break your heart, not in anything that the world has to offer you, but simply in who you are in Christ. For Christ is our mercy seat, and it was in his death, burial, and resurrection where God meets and speaks with his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, once again for your just devotion. God, we thank you for the ability to even come together and speak your name without fear, without persecution. And God, I pray that we will not look at this as something that you just do because, well, I'm from Mississippi and this is just what Mississippians do. But God, we come into your presence because we yearn to be with God's people, to be the church, to live actively as the church. And God, that we never turn into the, the Israelites that as they were wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, that we grumble and complain about the things in this life, but God, we see every blessing that has been bestowed upon us daily. Even during difficult times, even when it's hard to see that you're blessing us, God, I pray that you will show us the blessings. And that even during the difficult times, God, we can still stand firm and we can still proclaim your name and praise you for all the world to hear. And that we see the manna in our lives. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.